Yesterday was the full moon day of August, also a supermoon at that. In the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, Ulambana is celebrated on the full moon day of August. Ulambana is the celebration of the dead. At the meditation center I live at, we're going to have our celebration next Sunday. It sort of works like this. We cut bamboo and put it by the front door. As the wind or the breeze rustles through the bamboo, the spirits who have not been reborn yet hear that sound and are attracted to our meditation center. We have a chanting ceremony where we hit gongs and bring wooden clackers together to make a lot of noise. And then we give a Dharma talk about how to be reborn. Because for some reason these spirits were confused about their death and couldn't or didn't seek their rebirth. At the end of that ceremony, we eat. We have food, which, of course, for me is the best part. And we always offer food to the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas and all the ancestors first by placing it on the altar. Some of them may be hungry. The humans are always hungry. When a person dies... It is said in some Buddhist traditions that karmic energy migrates from one lifetime to the next, along with seeds of past memories, which will be recollected when one achieves nirvana. Until then, they lay dormant, and we lack the code to read about our past lives. It is said in order for a human birth to take place, we need a sperm and egg and karmic energy. And when those two things come together, life begins. Right now we got approximately 7 billion people on earth that have been reborn. Some say, well, is it a a steady number of dying and being reborn? If, if, If it's steady, why do more and more people keep coming back to earth? Because our population doesn't seem to decrease very much, even with all the wars we like to have. It seems to me that in the course of events, energy is being reborn out of heaven and being reborn out of hell and coming to earth. And it seems that some humans have forgotten what it's like to be a human being, So it can be a difficult situation for them. I found a video on YouTube, Alan Watts. He always sounded like he knew what he was talking about because of his accent. (laughs) And this particular video had to do with persona. Now, persona is a Latin word that means mask. And it can be applied to humans and the roles that they play. 
So I really like thinking about this stuff. I like thinking about why I'm here. My parents had sex. I had karma. Why I do what I do. I have a persona that identifies me. I have a mask that I wear. But I have a couple different masks that I wear depending on what I'm doing. If I'm working, I'm expected to be a certain way. If I'm driving, I'm expected to be a certain way. If I'm having fun, I'm expected to be a certain way. If I'm not having fun. And the list goes on. I can remember back in the 80s when I did a retreat. It was a weekend retreat, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Saturday afternoon, I started to see people wearing their hats. That was their persona I was seeing. I was starting to see the masks that they were wearing, but for me, the masks turned into hats. And some people had little hats on, and some people had rather large hats on. And I noticed that the person that wore the Buddhist hat, which was the teacher leading the retreat, he had the biggest hat of all. Because that hat can be worn in many different situations. And it's appropriate. Most of the others kept changing their hats depending on what they were doing or how they were feeling. So as Alan Watts talked about the persona, I thought, well, how did I get to be who I am? And the first person I had to blame was my mother because she wanted me to be able to speak and to walk and to do things. So she taught me how to speak a few words and understand a few things. And then one day she took me to this giant building with windows and filled with strangers. And she took me out of the car and said, go through that door. And then she left. And I couldn't believe my mother would leave me in front of this giant building with all these strangers. It turned out to be a school, and it just freaked me out. Because now I had to go in there, and I had to socialize with people. And I wasn't good at that, because I socialized with mom. And then we had to take a nap. And we each had a little rug that we'd put on the floor and we'd lay down. And at that time, I didn't want to take a nap. Now, every day about one o'clock, I always take a nap. So I started to learn a little bit about math and a little bit about reading and writing, and I started to see things in a rather unique way that I hadn't seen before because I was thinking and conceptualizing and I was separating myself from reality. I needed to be separate, and in order to be separate, I needed to be able to name things, and every time I could name something, I was separate from it, and then I could use it to my advantage, like the door. If I could name the door and understood how it worked, I could always leave the room. If I was one with the door, I'd never leave the room. So I continued to learn. Mathematics gave me an abstract way of understanding the world. Three oranges and three apples turned out to be six, ironically. Then I got into cultural literacy. They wanted me to be an American. I had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
When I first started saying the Pledge of Allegiance, we didn't have God in it. That was a long time ago. And then I had to find out about all the presidents and what they did and how good they were. And that George Washington cut down the cherry tree. And when he was asked, did you cut down the cherry tree? He said, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the cherry tree. And it was only years later that I realized that story never happened. It was a lie. But I learned a great truth from that. Don't believe anything. (laughs) So I continued to learn. I continued to see the world as I was supposed to. A man, an American, someone who could read and write almost. Then I got my Social Security card, and then I became a worker. And I had to identify myself with that number and the job that I did. And people would always ask me after I got out of high school, what kind of work do you do? And that was so they could identify me and they could relate to me in a certain way. And every time I said, well, right now I'm not working, they say, are you going to school? I said, right now I'm not going to school. They would say, well, who are you? I didn't exist enough for them. I didn't have labels that they could relate to. So I realized as I was going through life that I needed to be somebody most of the time. Then I remembered India 2,600 years ago when the Buddha was born. They had a caste system. You were born into your identity. Brahman, the priestly caste, warriors, rulers, the merchant class, and the laborers, the workers. And generally speaking, you never went any further than your caste. Even lifetime after lifetime, you were still born in the same caste. When I started to peel back all the stuff that had been layered to make me somebody, I came to a place that was rather unique. And then I bought this book a few years ago called The Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukov, quantum physics for the quantum physics person who doesn't have a math background or a science background. So I qualified. And I read this book, and it just blew my mind, because he was adding spirituality to quantum physics. And then we get to the wave particle stuff, which is the best stuff. And the wave particle stuff seems to go like this. They happen at exactly the same time, the particle and the wave. And depending on what time and how you're looking at it, you will see the particle or you will see the wave. And I applied that to the dilemma I was having. Because the dilemma I had after studying Buddhism for a while and after meditating was I could not find my soul. It had mysteriously disappeared for some reason. Everybody I knew had one. But the Buddha kept saying, you may not. Apparently I took it to heart. And when I looked carefully in mind and body, What I saw was a wave. I didn't see a particle. 
Now, this was difficult because most of the people I knew were Christian. And they had a soul. And they had a God. And God, for me, was like the particle. But it was the big particle. The primary particle. And the Buddha said, well, you know, the reality that I found when I achieved nirvana, it was not the particle, it was the wave, and I call that wave a Nietzsche. Away out here we have a name. Remember that song? I love that song. So we have a Nietzsche. Impermanence, which took the place of God for me. That impermanence was the basis of all reality. It was the ground of all being. Without impermanence, nothing could exist. Then I started to read about the Big Bang Theory, which I thought was really a cool theory. Because people always want to know. Remember the Malaysian airliner that disappeared? They still don't know. Millions of dollars have been spent. People are freaking out. How can we not know in 2014? Even the NSA doesn't know. So I'm looking at this wave. I'm looking at this impermanence. I'm looking at this expansion and contraction as the reason everything exists for me right now because I expect and can expand and contract as well. But it's difficult to think of impermanence as being the reason everything exists because it's so far out. Can we really see impermanence? Can we feel it? Can we touch it? Can we smell it? Every moment of every day. And when I look back to when I was 10, you know how on Thursday on Facebook you you post the old pictures? I found this really cute one of me in 1960 when I was going to grade school. My jeans were so long that they were folded up almost to my knee so I would not grow them during the school year. Got me through the whole year with that long pair of jeans. But that guy that I saw in the picture, he died a long time ago. He's no longer here. He may have been a good guy, but it's been so long ago, I can't even remember what kind of guy he was. And then there was the guy who was 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, and those guys, like, are all dead, too. Some of them I had to have a memorial service for because they didn't want to go. They wanted to continue. And they can't. Because the only reason I exist today is because everything changes and they're dead and I'm yet to be born tomorrow. So I continue to look at this wave and this particle and I see good and bad and value and no value in each perspective. And if they are both happening at the same time, and it just depends how you're looking at it, then both of them are real and valid ways of understanding the big picture and the small picture. So one is not better, one is not worse, one is not true, one is not false. It's just simply another way of looking at it. The advantage I see with the wave over the particle is it's not about uniformity. 
Don't you hate uniformity? And don't you see everybody seeks that because it's supposed to be secure and safe if we're all thinking the same thoughts and doing the same things and looking the same way. And as soon as you add a little diversity, people just freak out. And since the world has begun, there have been people who said, if we can just get rid of some of this diversity, this world will be a beautiful place. So world leaders have tried over and over again to get rid of all the diversity, but they always leave a few behind. Those little rascals can't get everybody. And it continues. It continues. So here we have this diversity, and instead of uniformity, we have unity. Unity allows for community and community allows for diversity. Cool. So far, so good. So I keep reading, and I keep listening, and I keep watching. And then I come to a place in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition where they talk about enlightenment. Now, I think enlightenment is different than nirvana, and I'll tell you why. Nirvana can be characterized as the end of suffering while you're alive, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirths. That is nirvana. Why would we want to go in the direction of no future rebirths? Because every time we're born, we're going to get sick. Every time we're born, we're going to get old if we live long enough. And every time we're born, we're going to die. And how many times have we died, if you understand rebirth or reincarnation? How many friends and relatives and pets have you put in the ground because they have died? And how sad has that been? And how many times has your heart broken? And everybody is so excited when another human is born, and aren't they the cutest little things? And I'm thinking, yeah, but they'll be dead soon. (laughs) You know? We got 7 billion people. In 100 years, those 7 billion people will all be dead. Where are we going to put them? Do we have enough space left? Well, maybe space is the place. And taking their place will probably be 12 billion. And it will continue. So, for a Buddhist, the idea would be not having to go through birth, sickness, old age, and death again. But would that lead to non-existence? Would that mean we would no longer exist? I don't think so. After years of meditation and a lot of thought, I have come to the conclusion that nirvana is an alternative reality, a parallel universe, if you will. Very difficult for us to understand. Everything in our universe had a starting point. It began. We call it creation. Creation always leads to destruction. The Buddha may have figured out a way to exist without being born. Exist because of nirvana and not birth. And if you read a description of nirvana, it is the unborn and undying. 
How cool would that be to exist in that unique way? But how difficult? How difficult? And what a practice this is, and what a sales pitch is necessary to make it desirable. Now we come to enlightenment. My definition of enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That at one moment in your meditation practice, you transcend. You transcend ego. You have a sudden ego death. Temporary, sudden ego death. And you are embraced by the universe. You have come home. You are no longer separate. You are unified. You are connected to all things. Have been for all time. And now you know for sure that is the case. And it changes the way you understand the universe and your position in the universe. So it's like going from the particle to the wave. But we can't stay there. We can only visit. Because we need to be a particle in order to exist in this very complicated world. We need to be an ego. We need to be separate. Because there's a lot of stuff we need to do. Sometimes we need to do jury duty. You can't be one with everything and do jury duty. You're going to have to be separate and wear your little badge. So as we look at this possibility of enlightenment, as we look at the possibility of defining it as the wave and not the particle, it's an evolution of sorts from going from being connected when we were born to being separate out of necessity so we could survive and coming to a place in our spiritual practice where we can re-experience that interconnection but not descending into a primal state but transcending into a supramundane state and know for a fact that we are never alone. We only experience aloneness but never loneliness because everything is connected to us and we are connected to everything. For 20 years, I've been involved in community service in prisons and juvenile halls and hospitals. And what I have come to understand is that it is really difficult to be connected to all things all the time because there is so much suffering. You may not think that's an appropriate word for the human condition, but when you come in contact with enough people every day, you realize suffering is the one constant we all struggle with. That's why it's the first of the Four Noble Truths. And it's not an overt suffering. It can be subtle. It can be simply, I wish it was vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate doesn't have to be a big deal, but you know if only it was the other way around, this moment could turn into a perfect moment, and it never does. So there's that little dissatisfaction, that little dis-ease that goes along with becoming aware, with waking up, seeing the true nature of reality. It can be 
difficult for those who haven't prepared themselves because it's not what the books tell us it is. It's not what most of the people we know tell us. It's the direct experience of what we've come to understand as being truth. That it is difficult to live and even in our death we are to be reborn again and again and again. And ultimately, when you've suffered enough lifetimes, then you get serious. And you say to yourself, this is the lifetime. I'm going to end my suffering. And I'm not talking about ego death, because we can't let the ego die. We really need that ego. But we don't have to let the ego be the master. The ego can simply be the tool we use to live in a complicated world. And in order to create a relationship like that with your ego, you need to observe it from a, a place of separation. Which is really interesting because can the eye see itself or the ear hear itself or the nose smell itself? How can the ego ever see itself other than be itself. So there's meditation techniques that allow us to get there in a very interesting place of observation. Imagine you're on a desert island and there's one palm tree and many clouds in the sky and you sit beneath the palm tree and look at the palms and you can watch the clouds move because of the wind. And yet if you were to take your eyes away from the palm leaf and look directly at the clouds, it seems to be stationary. So in order to see ego for what it is, we need to have a palm leaf of some sort. Because the ego is like the clouds that are moving. So what would be our palm leaf? It would be our object of meditation. For instance, it could be the sensation of breath. We've chosen that. And now we watch the sensation of breath. And when I say watch it, we're feeling the experience of the sensation. The sensation itself. That sensation is always happening right now. And if we are focused and continue our focus, we start to see in the background of our consciousness the thought train leaving the station. And each boxcar has a door that's open, and inside each door is a thought, and it just rumbles by, boxcar by boxcar, thought by thought. And in the old days, before we had an object of meditation, every thought that rumbled by would be us. But now we've chosen a perspective that allows us to see the thought in the same way quantum physics says, if you have the right perspective, you can see the particle, or you can see the wave. And once you've seen the thought process in action, you realize it doesn't have to be you. You can choose to be it. It does not need to choose to be you. You're getting your choice back. We haven't had a choice in a very long time. So now we start to see how the ego works. And it is a magician. It does magic every day. 
It takes all the information from our sense doors, drives them down a funnel to the smallest end, and out of that small end comes the story of our life. And we have a past, and we have a future, and we have heroes, and we have villains, and it is so exciting, this story of our life. Being created moment by moment by who we thought we were, and we've come to understand it's simply a process that occurs because we're human and we have a mind and a body. We don't say it doesn't matter. We don't say it's just a magic trick. Now we are amazed at the skill the ego has after all these centuries and eons of practice and all the information it has to work with. And we look at the world and what do we see? we see our ego, our ego story. When I first started thinking about this stuff, it just tripped me out. And I'm a big sci-fi fan. So I love spacesuits. The first book I ever read all the way through was Have Spacesuit Will Travel by Robert Heinlein in fourth grade. And what a gem that was. And it enabled me to think about myself and the world in a much different way. But then I applied that spacesuit theory to me. And I wear a spacesuit all the time. And I have these two little holes cut in so I can see out. And I have another hole so I can smell. Another hole so I can taste. And the gloves that I wear in my spacesuit are thinner so I can feel things. And the information that comes through that is all the information I have to work with. I can never leave this spacesuit. I can never experience a tree directly. I have to experience through the spacesuit and the information coming through it. And it's not even the best spacesuit because, you know, birds can see further and dolphins can swim faster and they have good spacesuits too, but But ours is unique because we can become aware of the awareness. And that is a trip. And that liberates you. And that makes you free. And how many people want to be free tonight? I sound like Jimmy Swagger. Do you want to be free tonight? Most people would say, well, not tonight. I just met this new girl. I'd rather not be free quite yet. Or there's this cool car that's coming out next year. I've got to get one of those. Then I'll be free. Freedom is a trip. But when you talk about freedom to a Buddhist, they're not talking about getting to do anything you want. They're talking about getting free from suffering. So when you say, who wants to be free from suffering tonight? You might get one hand up. But being free from suffering requires us to understand the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, to have a practice, to have a discipline, to slowly, gradually change the way we experience the world. And ultimately, we can experience the world as a Buddha, given enough time and practice. Until then, we experience the world and we wear our personas and we're so happy and proud that we have them. 
So, after having said all that, then you die again and forget everything you've done in the last lifetime. And you have to start over. And can you imagine if you wanted to start over in 1920? Where would you go? Maybe to the Theosophical Society? But there weren't a bunch of Buddhists hanging out there, meditating. It was really difficult. You couldn't go to the bookstore. The stuff was still being translated by a bunch of Protestants. (laughs) You know, nothing wrong with being Protestant, but they translated it like a Protestant. We've got some wonderful translations now because Buddhists are translating it. So here we are in 2014. We have so many advantages that those people didn't have. We have a chance, a real chance at freedom. And who's going to get it for us? If you find the right teacher, will that help you get free faster? Probably not. Probably not, because what the teacher tells you is what to look at, but not how to see it. See, you've got to figure that out. The teacher, as far as I'm concerned, walks next to you. You're both on the path. Now, he may have done a little more work, and that's why you consider him a mentor. But he is telling you what he or she does, not what you should do. And that's what I like about Buddhism. You know, I can't tell you what to do I can tell you what I do, what I read, how I think, and then I leave and have a cup of coffee. And you get to take all that stuff and do with whatever you want with it. Oh, that was good. Oh, that's stupid. Or whatever you want to do with it. But now and then, a bit of information might be useful to help you in your practice and your liberation. So even if the Buddha was here today, standing next to me, and he very well could be in his nirvana state. He could not liberate you. He was a teacher. A teacher. And he told the world what he did and how he did it. And then he went and had a cup of tea. And if you wanted to do it, fine. If you didn't want to do it, fine. Some people, it said, have a lot of dust on their eyes. Some people just have a little dust on their eyes. Some people see it right away. Some people, it takes a long time to see it. Some people never see it. But that's okay. Somebody asked me the other day, is Buddhism the best religion? I said, well, Buddhism is the best religion for Buddhists. It's pretty specific. And you won't help you find God. Not that that's a bad thing or a good thing. Some people want to have a relationship with God. I, on the other hand, never felt compelled. It didn't seem like it was necessary. I knew a lot of atheists who were really good people. I knew Buddhists who never talked about God and did good things. I had a father and a mother. My parental figures are in place and fine. Because to me, God was an old guy with a beard in a throne with a cane. 
always watching me and not necessarily happy with what I did. On the other hand, the Buddha gave me complete permission to do anything I wanted. He said, you can do anything you want as a Buddhist. I will not do anything to you. But karma will. (laughs) The cause and consequence of karma takes the place of divine intervention. Takes the place of laws that are divinely inspired. The things we can do and the things we can't do. Buddhism gave me so much permission. And if I screwed up and if I suffered, it was because I screwed up and I suffered. That's all. I wasn't bad. I was unskillful. So, we're born, we die, we got a little time in between. Buddhism gives us something to do. If we don't get to the end, at least we suffer a little less along the way. And if we do awaken once in a while and see that interconnectedness and interdependence, what you'll find is your heart will break. Never to mend again. Because now you've come to realize that if someone is hungry, it literally is a part of you that is hungry. If someone is homeless, it's part of you that is homeless. If someone dies, a little part of you dies with them. And yet you get up every day and you smile and you read the Facebook posts, look at the cat pictures, Life isn't that bad. And yet, just around the corner, because you're waking up, you see the suffering. Just around the corner, you see the suffering. And we can't deny it any longer, but it doesn't have to be us any longer either. That we can be, we can be bodhisattva soldiers, if you will, and have a sense of equanimity that allows us to go in almost any situation and not carry the burden of the suffering, but the activity of reducing the suffering comes forth naturally because of our practice. So we make a difference in the world one person at a time, just like the Buddha did. Well, That was a lot of stuff. Always interesting to talk about life and death. If I brought it with me, let me see here. Yes, I did. I'd like to read this to you as a way of closing my talk. So, once a month, I go to Leisure World in Seal Beach, 7,500 old people just like me. And we have the best time. I love old people. They're moving a little slower. They're talking a little slower. You know, there's no hurry. We got no place to go. Nothing to do. We'll all be dead soon. Let's enjoy the moment. But it doesn't, not a week goes by where the ambulance or some other medical thing comes into Leisure World. And takes one away. Because they're all old. And they're all going to die. And so the ambulance comes and everybody sort of watches it come in. Wonder who it is. If they had a good death and a good life. So one of the women 
her name was Marlene, who came to the Buddhist club, clubhouse number four at Leisure World, got brain cancer for the third time. In her 70s, but she still had some stuff she wanted to do, and she didn't want to die. So the doctors said, well, we have a new concoction. We have blended some chemicals together that might help you get through this. And, and I went to see her in, her in her apartment at Leisure World, and we talked. We sat down over the kitchen table, and we just had like this talk. And she said, should I do it? She said, you know, the, between the radiation and the chemotherapy, you die a thousand times. Is it worth dying a thousand times to live once again? I said, well, you know what? You're in charge. It's up to you. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. If you think you're better to check out now and get that next rebirth lined up, maybe that's the way you should go. I left, and last week Marlene died. So one of the women from the Buddhist club said, could you write something about death and Buddhism and make it really Buddhist? <laughs> I said, sure, Buddhists are good at talking about death. So I, I'm not the best writer or author, but this is what I came up with. As a Buddhist, death should come as no surprise. But the time of death is always a surprise to the one who's dying. This never seems like the day or the week or the month it will happen. I suppose it's a blessing of sorts. That being the case, every day we wake is a chance to have a good day and a good death. Karma is the key to life and death. Remember I talked about the reason we're here is because we got karma and parents? Karma. Uh, a famous Buddhist quote. I am the owner of my karma. I was born of my karma. I am dependent on my karma. I will die because of my karma. Whatever intention I have, speech or action I shall do, whether skillful or unskillful, the results will be mine. Accountability. Buddhism says you need to have accountability. In understanding the importance of karma, we can be proactive in the way we live and in the way we die. Another quote from Buddhism, mind and body. Mind and body are of the nature to decay. I have not gone beyond decay. Mind and body are of the nature to be diseased. I have not gone beyond disease. Mind and body are of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. This is, this is brutal stuff. This is, gets you right, you know, the Buddha didn't beat around the bush. He said you've got to look at it realistically. And every time you do, that day that you're still here is the most important day of your life. Mind and body are the building blocks of who we are and subject to sickness, old age, and death. 
It's just a matter of time for all of us. So, why be sad? Because we are human, and we have a past and a future, and a memory of how things were, and thoughts of how things could be. Loss of life hits us hard, reminds us of our own mortality, and that change, impermanence, is with us every moment of every day. If we can take a moment and take a breath, come face to face with our fear, sadness, and loss, we can start the healing process. We can heal, laugh, and smile again. Make plans for the life ahead. The sadness becomes an opportunity to see the world as it really is, impermanent. The wave. This is a simple memorial service for Marlene. O Buddhas and Bodhisattvas abiding, abiding in all directions, endowed with great compassion, endowed with foreknowledge, endowed with divine eye, endowed with love, affording protection to sentient beings, please come forth through the power of your great compassion. Please accept these offerings, both actually presented and mentally created. O compassionate ones, you possess the wisdom of understanding, the love of compassion, the power of doing divine deeds, and of protecting in incomprehensible measure. Marlene passed from this world to the next. She is taking a great leap. The light of this world has faded for her. She has entered solitude with her karmic forces. She has gone into a vast silence. She is borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. O compassionate ones, protect Marlene who is defenseless. Be to her like a mother and father. O compassionate ones, let not the force of your compassion be weak, but aid them. Let Marlene not go into the miserable states of existence. Forget not your ancient vows. Simple and to the point. One last story before questions and answers. Somebody asked me the other day, does Buddhism have miracles? I said, oh yes. We've got some really good ones. He said, can you tell me one? I said, oh yes, I'd be glad to. The story goes that the Buddha was in a village giving a Dharma talk and a woman came up with her dead child in her arms. Two years, three years old, couldn't let her go. She came to the Buddha and said, I understand you can bring her back to life. And the Buddha said, yes, I can. But I need something from you, he said. I need a mustard seed and you need to go to a house in the village where no one has died and get a mustard seed and bring it back to me. And she went to every house in the village. And someone had died in every house. The uncle, the aunt, 
the grandparents, the parents. And by the time she got back to the Buddha, she understood that because of birth, death had to occur. And she came to a place of acceptance with the death of her daughter and was able to bury her. In Buddhism, we would call that kind of acceptance a miracle because most of us would be in denial, would not be happy with the outcome and want to change it. When you come to a place of acceptance, it brings the relationship back into balance. Loss and gain simply are two sides of the same coin. Does anybody have any questions or comments about what I've said tonight? Our, okay, anybody have any answers? <laughs> okay, well, let me close with a loving-kindness meditation, and we'll call it a night. And thank you very much for taking the time to come and listen to me speak tonight. May those of us who have come together tonight in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties problems, and failures in life. By the power of truth found in the Buddha Dharma, may all misfortunes due to stars, demons, harmful spirits, and ominous planets be prevented and destroyed. May the rain fall in due time. May there be a rich harvest. May the world be prosperous May the governments be righteous. With the powers of all the fully awakened Buddhas, may those of us sitting here tonight be secure and protected in every way. Thank you.